Good morning. I am uh, very excited to be here with you this morning. I am carrying on the series that we've been doing in the book of Philippians. Um, my, my wife and I have four of the kids that run around here at Northbridge. They range in ages from 16 months all the way up to eight years. So what that means for us in our house is that our, our house is frequently loud and always very messy. And it seems one of the worst spots in our house is the dining room and the kitchen. It seems that no matter how often we sweep that area, there's always little bits and pieces waiting to be stepped on. Uh, a few days ago, I stepped on one of those pieces. I was in the kitchen, um, and I immediately could tell when I stepped on it that it was just wet enough that it was going to stick to my sock, which means now this thing is a part of my life. There's no ignoring it. I, I have to deal with it. And full confession, I really did not want to deal with that thing. Um, so I pulled this move, hopefully you can relate, where I picked up that dirty foot, brought it to my clean foot, wiped it off on the top of my clean foot, and kind of flicked it away. And I left it there. I left it there, and that was no longer my mess. I left it there, and I walked out of the room to the other room. And on our stairs, I immediately saw that there was, on the stairs, littered, um, with Hot Wheels cars and tracks that the boys had left there. And I was immediately very, very frustrated because I've had this fight with the boys over and over. You pick up your things when you're done cleaning. Uh, you pick up your things when you're done playing with them. You clean up after yourself. So I was asking myself, how many times am I going to have this fight, this conversation with them? Where did they learn to be so messy? And it only took me a couple seconds to connect the dots that... Uh, they learned their messiness from imitating me, their messy father. And in this section of Philippians, um, Paul actually starts off with this bold statement inviting the Philippians to imitate him. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into this section. Lord, thank you for this morning that we can be together as a church family. We pray that you would uh, quiet our hearts, help us to focus on this space in the here and now so that we can hear uh, what you have for our lives. I pray that I would be able to get out of the way, that your message would be able to be presented clearly, um, and that we would, you would be glorified this morning. Amen. Uh, you can open up your Bibles. We're going to be in chapter 3 of Philippians. Here's a nice painting of Paul writing his letters. Well, I feel you went on the context where we are so far. This letter to the Philippians is, uh, is uh, the letter that he wrote while he was in prison. They had sent him a gift to make him more comfortable in prison. They were worried about Paul uh, being in prison, what it meant for Paul, what it meant for the future of the church. And his response um, is one that encourages them to thank them for their gift, but to more encourage them for their... Uh, in their struggles, and to give them joy despite the circumstances that they found around themselves. I'm going to pick it up in verse uh, 17 here. You can follow along. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Paul starts off with this invitation. Um, He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what he's saying here is do as I do. Um, Earlier in this chapter, he did admit, though, that he was not perfect. You can scan back up to verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he's not trying to make exact copies of himself. He's not trying to make people that eat the same foods or tell the same jokes. He's telling them to follow the example he set. Um, A lot of translations will put this as uh, the pattern of Christ-likeness we gave you, which is really helpful for understanding what Paul is trying to say here. He's not saying, be exactly like me. He's saying, identify those ways in which I'm like Christ and imitate those. This is a, it's a challenging verse uh, for parents like me because we know that our kids are always watching us even when we don't think they see us flick things off of our feet and leave messes for other people. They, uh, they are, <laughs> they know, and they're imitating us. But it also applies to our friends and our coworkers who, especially those who know that we're Christians, they are hypersensitive to watching us. They're trying to pick up on any sense of, of hypocrisy in us. And to some extent, all Christians are hypocrites because we say we should live at this standard, but at the same time falling well short of that, which we know as Christians isn't really a problem. That's not, we know that Jesus is our righteousness for us. So even though we fall short, um, Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. So that's a really good uh, opening for us to be authentic with our kids, with our friends, with our coworkers. Um, When they see us falling short, we can say that's not really, we're not trying to be perfect. We know that Jesus paid uh, paid the price of our sins for us. Um, Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The word for at the beginning of verse 18, that's a transitional keyword um, that shows that Paul is building up to something here. <clears throat> this is one of the arguments for what he's saying. And this, uh, this formula that we're going to see is very similar to what we see in a lot of Proverbs, where it starts with, son, heed my instruction. Don't be like the foolish man. He did something foolish and a bad thing happened. Instead, be like the wise man who did something wise and a good thing happened. So right here, he's starting this negative example don't be like these people I have often told you about and tell you even with tears. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Um, the subtext, the implied point that he's making here, it's a warning for them that they also could be enemies of the cross of Christ if they fall under the, the, uh, the influence of some negative culture around them. Earlier in this chapter, he had warned them against a group called the Judaizers, which were a group of, uh, of Christians, Christ followers, that they thought it was essential to still perform all the laws of the Jewish tradition. 
So they still highly valued your parentage if you had good parents or if you had a high place in the church. And if you were still um, following these purity laws, thousands and thousands of laws. Um, so this group of people didn't really get that Jesus had come, fulfilled these prophecies, and those laws didn't apply anymore. And not just the Judaizers, but the Greek culture around the Philippians was very hedonistic, which means they, um, they viewed physical pleasure as one of the, the highest good on earth. So he's warning them not to be like these people. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You could, uh, you could take any lyrics from pop songs, popular songs today, for a lot of examples of people uh, taking glory in their shame or having their minds set on earthly things or following the appetites of their flesh. I considered sharing some of those lyrics this morning, um, but I looked through a few of the popular songs and I knew that if I posted them here in church, I'd get in a lot of trouble and I probably wouldn't be ba asked back up here. Um, so you can, you can do that on your own if you really want to. Paul describes it similarly in his letter that he writes to the Galatians. In 519, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The, the phrase in verse 19 of Philippians, belly is their God, that hit a little close to home for my liking. I'm not really a, a small guy. Um, I found out in putting this, I, I put a lot of uh, time and effort into making sure I am well-fed, um, and not just well-fed, but I have interesting things to eat, not just potatoes and bread. Um, and I found out in putting this together that roughly 70% of the United States measures, registers as either overweight or obese according to the BMI the body mass index, which I'm quick to point out is not a measure of, of our health. So if you, if you register as overweight or obese, it doesn't mean you're unhealthy. I just, uh, I use that because we, as a country, we're famous for being overweight. Um, we're famous for two things. One is being fat. The other is being well-armed. So nobody's gonna try and take our food away. It's a, it's a problem we have to solve on our own. Um, the average calorie count in restaurants in the United States, any meal is going to be between 1,200 and 1,300 calories, which is roughly double what you need in a single sitting. Um, you can take a look at these two pictures here, offerings from a couple popular restaurants. You might even recognize these um, offerings. Both of these measure in at 2,000 calories, almost triple what you need. Um, but this is normal. This is normal in our culture that we are offered this much food at every single sitting. In fact, it would be weird if, if you went to a restaurant like this and ordered a meal and they brought you something more sensible, like a third of this size, and they put that in front of you, you would take a picture of that. Um, you, I say you, I mean we, me too. I would take a picture of this, take it home, um, post a one-star review on Google with the comment, where's the rest of my food? That's how normal it is in our country to overindulge, um, to have the sin of gluttony just right there all the time. But the existence of a cultural norm like this doesn't justify our participation in it. 
just because it's there and it's normal for everybody else, it doesn't mean we have the freedom to take part in it. Um, feasts are a different thing. Feasts are special events at holidays or uh, weddings that Jesus took part in plenty of times. That's not really what I'm getting into here. I'm talking about when, um, when food is consumed compulsively, habitually, mindlessly, um, in a way that's not glorifying to God. Um, and that's the standard when we're eating and when we're drinking. We do it for the glory of God. Verse 20 here. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And um, the, at the beginning of verse 20, that word but is another transitional keyword where he's starting the positive example. He did the negative example, don't be like the foolish man, did something foolish, bad thing happened. Now he's starting that positive example, the wise person, to imitate. Um, and the wise person here is the person that remembers that their citizenship is in heaven. This is their hope and their reason for resisting the pull of the negative influences around them. When the Judaizers say, you need to follow these laws, um, this is their reason that, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. We're focused on Jesus. Or when the, the, the pagan culture tells them, follow the desires of your flesh, they say, our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for Jesus. That's their motivation for the things that they do and the things that they don't do here on earth. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This verse would be really comforting, particularly for the people that were sick or injured. Um, they would be reminded that all their aches, their pains, their sicknesses, those would melt away at the end of their life when they're face-to-face -face with Jesus. Um, I'm still pretty young myself, so I don't get a lot of the, the pains that come with age. Every once in a while, I'll sleep on my shoulder funny, but that's not really something to complain about. Um, from what I understand, as you get older, you start waking up with an ache or a pain that you don't remember earning, that you didn't do anything to get that. And so it's very comforting to know that our time here on Earth is relatively brief. So those aches and those pains, those will melt away. We'll have glorified bodies um, for all eternity. Verse 4-1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Therefore, that word, is his final transitional keyword where he is saying, because of all this that I just said, stand firm. And I really like, I appreciate how Paul's affection bleeds through in his letters, not just here to the Philippians, but in general to all his letters in the, um, in the New Testament. He says, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It really shows that he is uh, very, very selflessly pouring himself out for the churches that he loves, and he's not... He doesn't hesitate to show that affection, to tell them how much he wants to be with them, how much he wants them to be encouraged and stand firm. Um, that's something we can really take away from Paul in general, not just here, 
that we also should be selfless in, um, in building up our church and loving each other here and not, being, uh, not hesitating to let, each other, let everybody know that we appreciate them. And then he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Um, last week, Kevin had shared a, a, a story of when he and his brother, when they were younger, I'm, uh, they went to the ocean. I'm paraphrasing. I'm pretty sure I got this right. They went swimming in a hurricane. Um, little boys might think that's a good idea for some reason. And with results you would expect, they got swept out. Um, they had to panic and swim back. They barely made it back. And then they, they chose a more appropriate game, one that uh, I'm sure many of us have played before. You stand ankle-deep, knee-deep in the water while waves crash in against you, and you try and stay rooted in that one spot, and then the waves pull you back, and you have to fight against that current. That's the illustration, in, the image in my mind that I get when he says, stand firm. Uh, there's a lot of applications just from a few verses, um, a short section like this. The first, that um, a question that you can ask yourself is who are your role models? Who is it that you imitate? This is especially, young, uh, especially true for young people um, because the default mode of kids is to imitate the people around them. That's the normal, natural way to be a kid. Um, and one of the wisest things young people can do is to realize that this is already happening, accept it because it's going to keep happening, but figure out who your role models are that you either know or don't know and figure out if it's for good reasons. Um, a lot of times we will look up to famous people, actors and actresses and singers, or, uh, or now these days influencers on some social media page. Um, and might I suggest you choose again, um, choose a better source. Typically good sources come from your family or from your church. And just like Paul said, we don't have to imitate our role models in every single way. Um, in fact, the parents here will admit, if you twist their arm, that they don't do everything 100% correctly. And so they shouldn't be followed in every single way. Um, but instead, figuring out the ways in which they are Christ-like and imitating those instead. It's really helpful to have a role model to look up to as somebody to model. But it is also very helpful to have a negative example of somebody that you don't want to become. Um, so you can create an imaginary person. Um, if you were to leave a sinful behavior, a bad habit, unaddressed in your own life, what does that mean? What kind of person does that make you 10, 20, 30 years down the road? And uh, a simple example, if I were to continue eating myself sick at every single meal, uh, what that means for me is possibly early death, certainly... Um, low energy, not feeling great. Um, and the more graphic you make this negative example, the more motivating it can be uh, for what you avoid or for what you do here on earth. The point being that you don't want to make God teach you the hard way because he will. Um, in Hebrews 12, 6, it says, the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if you are a Christian, God is going to correct you with discomfort or pain to save you from future greater pain. That's, uh, that's the strategy we use with our kids, 
is that we, you know, you give them a timeout or whatever it is, some consequence now so that later on when they become adults, they're not facing dire consequences. God does that in a perfectly loving way. And we don't, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to face pain and discomfort from God. You can do it the right way now and not face those, those consequences. Uh, the second application here, you should think about what is influencing your life. What is the content that shapes what you think about? For many of us, um, social media is a daily part of our lives. Um, and I hope I'm not the first person to tell you this, but social media companies like Facebook and YouTube, um, a dozen others, I'm not cool enough to know their names. These companies uh, are not your friends. They don't have your best interest in mind. At best, they want to get money out of you. And I say at best, I have my own personal conspiracy reasons why social media companies want to maintain their huge platform and keep you on it. But for simplicity's sake, let's just say they're after our money. They make a lot more money the longer they can keep us on their platforms. So they've put a lot of time and effort and research into figuring out how to keep people from leaving their social media platform. There's been innovations like the endless scroll function or autoplay feature. Endless scroll is where you can just flick and flick and flick and it brings you a status update, status update, news article, video, over and over and over again. Um, or the autoplay features when a video comes up, automatically starts playing a movie before you've even clicked anything. And they know that we humans are hardwired to seek novelty. We like seeing new things, getting new information. It gives us a tiny hit of dopamine, which is a feel-good drug that we create naturally. Um, but they are, uh, they know, they use this against us in a way that keeps us on their page. So the more novelty they can give us automatically, the harder it is to leave, uh, to stop looking at people's status updates. Um, there's a, a growing body of research that shows just how damaging this can be, particularly to young people who use social media uh, and I think a big part of that is because young people don't understand that when you see um, a picture that somebody posts, it's not really telling the whole truth. Um, I wanted to show you an example of that. I just took a random picture off the internet to show you just some random family. Um, <laughs> this picture show, tells a story here. It tells you that their kids are well-behaved, they are clean, they probably smell nice, the parents are well-rested, um, and they probably just spend their time sitting around smiling at each other. Uh, this is a Christmas card level picture that you're looking at. Um, but it, the, <laughs> the older people here, you know that this is not, certainly not telling the whole story. That uh, this is not what real life is like. That this is just a tiny snapshot into what's real. Um, we know that older people have that idea, even though subconsciously we see this and it creates this false expectation of what other people's lives are like. Um, I'll show you another picture of this family with uh, the great-grandkids with the great-grandparents. Um, this is, uh, you can tell that it's not quite as well put together as the other picture. But it still tells that, hey, these kids are happy. They love their great-grandparents. They're having a good time. But behind the scenes, I thought it would be informative 
to show you what goes into a picture like this. Oh man, it's gonna wear it's gonna wear him out. Okay, time out. That's more what real life is like behind the scenes. You get you get two seconds at max to take a good picture, and and that picture was the best we got after all of that. Um, we understand this as adults that we know that that's more what you should expect in other people's lives. They're struggling just like you, but younger kids they don't realize that yet. Um, I'm taking a couple uh, graphs from a book. I'm going to tell you the name of the book. It's a, it's a mouthful, and it tells you exactly what the book is about. It's called iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood, what that means for the rest of us. This chart takes a look at uh, the relative risk of unhappiness based on social media use for 8th graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders. Um, so very. I'll keep this simple for you, but... Uh, eighth graders that spend more than 10 hours a week on social media are 55% more likely to report being unhappy. And that sort of tapers off as they get older, but it doesn't go away completely, not in school and not even in adulthood, that uh, we're still more likely to say we're unhappy if we use social media. Um, this book more looked at what it, how it damages youth. Um, take this next graph as informative as well. These gray bars at the top are the activities that uh, are uh, negative correlations with unhappiness. So the gray bars, um, sports or exercise, religious services, uh, those are the things that make kids less likely to say that they're unhappy. Whereas the black bars below, uh, TV, video, chat, computer games, texting, social networking, websites, the internet, those are all things that increase their risk of being unhappy. And, Coincidentally, that's all screen time stuff. Giving them uh, a screen, particularly with internet, is a recipe for unhappiness for our kids. And this is coming out more and more. You're going to be seeing a lot of research that comes out that says this technology that we're giving to our kids is very damaging to them. Um, so the, the alternative is to pick any of, those, any of those activities at the top there as alternatives to screen time, sports or exercise, religious services. Good job. Those... Parents that brought your kids to church today, they are less likely to be unhappy. Um, third takeaway from this section, how do you experience joy? Do you remember your heavenly citizenship? That's something that cultivates joy in our lives. We once, as sinners, were lost. We were separated from God by our sin with no way to save ourselves, dead in our transgressions. Each of us individually heard the story of Jesus and that he paid the price for our sins so that there would be no condemnation for those who are uh, those of us who are in Christ Jesus that he died on the cross and that our debt is cleared it's sort of like a, a guy who's 20 billion dollars in debt he wakes up the next morning and it's back to zero except our gift from Jesus is so much more than that uh, because not only is our debt cleared but we are seen to have the righteousness of Jesus when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We're co-heirs with him. And that's what we have to look forward to for all eternity, is that God loves us as he loves Jesus. 
And that's something that's worth contemplating and celebrating as often as we can remember it. Um, the more we do that, the smaller and less significant all these events around us will seem, the more joyful our lives are. Um, last takeaway here, Paul ends his message with the, the phrase, stand firm. Um, the phrase, stand firm, is often used in tandem with the word, fear not. So, for example, in Exodus, when the Egyptians were escaping, when the Israelites were escaping the Egyptians, um, they were about to be caught. And everybody was shaking in their boots. They thought this was the end. They caught us. We're, we're all going to die. And Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. A very similar uh, phrase that's often used as the translation is the phrase, take heart. In John 16:33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, stand firm, fear not. I have overcome the world. He doesn't say all those things. He just says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Um, so stand firm, fear not, take heart. These phrases are used so often in the Bible, dozens and dozens of times um, here in Philippians as well. And I think the reason for that is because we are a people that we are prone to worry um, because there is so little that we can control in and around our lives. It fills us with all this uncertainty. So we have to be reminded daily, hourly, that Jesus is in control, um, that our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul writes to the Ephesians, uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians a, very, uh, a very encouraging um, passage that I'll read for you in 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we know that Jesus is in control. Therefore, Northbridge, whom I love, stand firm thus in the Lord. I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we could listen to your word, that you, um, that you are in control, that we don't have to worry about everything. We thank you that our citizenship, our ultimate destiny is with you in glorified bodies for all eternity. We pray that we would keep this in our minds and in our hearts, and we thank you for this morning. Amen.